Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. We talk a lot about science in the show, but this week we're going to turn and pivot just a little bit towards how you can use that knowledge of science and of food to advocate for food policy. Um, Today, our guest is um, the author of a new book that's just been released. It's At the Table, A Chef's Guide to Advocacy. Our guest is Catherine Miller. Catherine has built a 20-year career working at the intersections of policy, politics, and social impact. She develops and manages award-winning campaigns. She trains activists around the world and helps deliver millions of supporters, along with hundreds of millions of dollars in funding, to efforts that are focused on global health, climate change, gender bias and violence, and food system reform. In her new book, At the Table, She highlights the ways that people can get involved in food policy and advocacy. And so I'm really excited to learn more about your work and how we can all help to advocate for better food policies. Thanks for coming on the show, Catherine. No, thanks for having me. So So I think, yeah, I I think you have a really interesting background. So I know you're based in Washington, D.C., you've been really involved in kind of advocacy. What made you turn your sights on food and food policy as a topic of interest? Well, I mean, food is one of the most personal, political, and often sort of almost overlooked um, policy issues that's facing us all, that face us today. I mean, we all eat, (laughs) right? And um, we all need to eat. Food is the thing that if we uh, eat too much of it, it can kill us in the same way if we don't eat enough of it, um, right? It's a place where we look at issues related to wage, to workforce, to mental health. Um, it's also a place where we look at economies, right? Um, food is a driver of both community-based and global economies around the world. And so, you know, I, I think that food is a singular subject that touches all of our lives multiple times a day. And it's also something that's incredibly relatable, but we also but most don't have a real understanding of how policy impacts our food system. So it it seemed pretty, once I got into it, it seemed pretty obvious, but I'll be honest, I was like an eater like most people and I didn't really think about it (laughs) until I had the good fortune to work with chefs. So um, it's a, but it is a singular issue and it impacts all of our lives. So that's great. Let's, let's start there with this idea of government food policy how do chefs engage with government food policies? Like, like what, what did you find in your research on this book? Yeah, so I mean, I think government food policies, like, you know, we have one true food bill every five years, which in the United States is the farm bill. Um, you know, the systems of subsidies and tax breaks and um, purchasing that happens through the money of that bill Um, is actually pretty similar to governments around the world. But within the U.S., the farm bill is is really what I always call the food bill. Right. It's the it's the money that funds farmers to grow food. It's the money that funds nutrition efforts. It's the money that funds emergency feeding. It's also the money that funds our international food aid. Um, And it's a pretty opaque bill. Right. And so as advocacy goes, advocacy is really complicated. And I think when we think about science, medical advocacy or um, advocacy that deals with a lot of science and facts and figures, it, it can be, get really complicated and people's brains can shut off very quickly, right? Um, chefs are a great translator, right? We think about how they take food from a farmer 
create something delicious, put it on the plate with a narrative that connects it to your own life, your own experience, your own likes and dislikes. Um, and so that really was a lesson in this work, right? How do we find people who can simplify very complicated processes, very complicated policy pieces, and turn it into something that, you know, the average eater or the average consumer can understand and also be motivated to help. And so chefs for me really became the great translator in food policy. Um, and they work on all sorts of issues, right? They work on efforts to reduce food waste, which makes sense at the table and in the restaurants, everybody's trying to use the most things to, you know, emergency feeding or hunger um, programs, which a lot of people in the restaurant and chef community have actually experienced in their lifetime. So they have really amazing, authentic stories to tell. Two things as, you know, diverse as mental health legislation to fund for, uh, to fund funding for, to create funding for mental health policies to um, more societal um, and uh, issues such as LGBTQIA rights or um, handgun issues or ab abortion rights. So they, it covers the spectrum, but they are the great translators of really complicated concepts. And that I think helps a lot with food. So I'd love to dive in a little bit deeper into the farm bill. You call it also kind of like the food bill. I call it the health bill because mm -hmm. I would argue that the farm bill is probably one of the biggest health policy bills that we have among our government because we yeah. subsidize a lot of the foods that unfortunately contribute to obesity, to metabolic syndrome, to um, basically the reasons why we have such cheap, highly processed foods that are enriched with high fructose corn syrup and other products we know are not good for our health. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit more about what are what goes into this bill? Like what is a subsidized crop? Are vegetables like kale subsidized or are we only really focused on corn and wheat and other commodity crops in this bill? Yeah. So, I mean, the bill covers all of it, right? So when we look at fresh fruits and vegetables, we um, it is a narrower piece of the legislation, right? So we um, in uh, Washington, D.C. parlance, um, fresh fruits and vegetables are considered specialty crops, which always makes me a little um, insane, right? Um, and so there's money in the farm bill for organic certifications and to subsidize uh, crop uh, producing methods that are more regenerative, better healthy soil. Um, there's money in there to uh, support food waste reduction efforts. Um, food is one of the greatest emitters to greenhouse gas emissions and food waste reduction will help um, curb that. You know, there's uh, new pilot programs that were created. Chef Michelle Nishan, who's in the book uh, and uh, was a co-founder of the James Beard Foundation Chef Boot, Fam for Boot Camp for Policy and Change, works a lot with his organization, Wholesome Wave, to um, allow you know, people to double their um, fresh fruit and vegetable purchases, to purchase those things in farmer's markets, right? So that money is also in the farm bill under the um, GUSNIP program is what it's called in Washington. So there is money in there, but to your great point, right? A lot of the money is in a circular subsidy program that sits in two buckets, right? The farm bill breaks the money into a lot of SNAP funding, right? Supplemental nutrition access programs that are designed to help people um, have to help them alleviate hunger in their own lives and their families' lives. A challenge with that is those SNAP dollars can be spent at grocery stores. They can be spent on, you know, and they can also be spent on deals with larger agriculture and food companies, right? So 
Um, we are looking for you know ways to turn that a little. So there's been some move there, but that is you know that is the largest part of the farm bill, farm bills and supplemental nutrition programs. And a lot of that goes to subsidize sort of the deals and the cheapness of processed food. Um, and then there's the crop subsidies, right? So which are really mostly in the form of crop insurance. And it certainly does look, uh, it certainly is prioritizing things like corn, wheat, soybean, um, uh, grapeseed, those types of commodity pieces. It's also the bill that uh, supports dairy, right? And protects um, dairy farmers. So, you know, it's the gamut. And I think what's up to us as individuals, as advocates, is to find the piece that we're most interested in, right? So the Farm Bill has a little bit of everything for everybody. If you're very interested in nutrition, um, there are certainly pieces of it that you could advocate more um, for more inclusion of. Um, and there's certainly also some translation. Like I said, you know, I'm always like, uh, the Farm Bill includes specialty crop supports and those are your fresh fruits and vegetables. So it has a little bit of everything for all of us and just, but we don't really pay attention to it. Yeah. I I think you summarized it so so beautifully. Thank you, um, because it is kind of this large bill that I think most people are unfamiliar with. Well, when it comes to chefs and kind of talking points, like what are the aspects of the farm bill that you find chefs to be most engaged with? Um, what are the areas where you find that that they can really play a role in helping to educate and, and advocate for certain policies within this bill? Yeah, well, what I love about chefs and what I love about all of us, right, as eaters and followers of the food system is we're not a monolith, right? We all have very distinct issues that we care about, right? Somebody might, um, Chef El Simone, who's also in the book, you know, speaks very eloquently about her time on SNAP and how her, cho her choice to rely on this federal emergency assistance program was the thing that freed her up both mentally and financially to be able to pursue her chef education, right? So she is a huge advocate for SNAP programs and how they help support people through times of um, real trouble. You know, Chef Michelle Nishan from Wholesome Wave is really focused on expanding um, the GUSNIP program, this nutrition program that supplies fresh fruits and vegetables at a greater rate to families, right, through food as medicine programs, through voucher programs. So, right, like that's his passion. Chef Murad Lalu and uh, Tiffany Derry and Stephen Satterfield, who are also in the book, really focused on food waste, right, because they see it every day, the um, how they could curb waste in their own kitchen. And so, and there are pilot funds in the Farm Bill to do that. So I think one of the interesting things about policy advocacy and really even for chefs is that we all have issues that we care about. We all have issues that we're really passionate about. We need to maybe focus sometimes on more than, and, and not do 10 issues and do one issue, right? Um, and we also need to translate it from the jargon that is Washington, D.C. to the story of um, that really attaches in our brains this narrative, this aspirational thinking that gets people both um, educated, but also inspired to, to join you in your causes. So that's really what I think is the beauty of chefs, right? Like there are, there's a chef for every part of the farm bill and there's a farm bill for every eater in America. And what we need to do is think about ways that we can streamline what we care about, right? Really pick the issues that are, we're passionate about and translate it from sort of, you know, jargon to aspirational thinking. It's amazing. I've had the pleasure of interviewing um, Chef Satterfield on the show before. So for all the listeners, if you're interested in, in listening to his show, we did a nice episode on peanuts a number of years ago. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, another chef that's that's hugely inspirational to me is uh, Chef Sean Sherman, who yeah. we've also interviewed. And he's really passionate in his advocacy around reclamation of indigenous foods of, of North America. So I think you're right. There are, are like very clear paths that that chefs can take um, yeah. in advocating. So can you give some examples um, within your book, maybe just a little teaser of some of the ways that these different chefs advocate for for their specific programs? Yeah, and I think I think Chef Sherman is a great example, right? Because advocacy in the chef world really happens in three places. It happens on the plate, right? The producers that they choose to prioritize, the dishes that they choose to prepare, and how they speak to them to their customers, right? So that is actually a form of advocacy. I mean, if we think about it again as like an eater, if you just tell everybody, oh, I bought this from a woman-owned restaurant, or I bought this from a black farmer, right? Like that is actually a form of education and advocacy. So chefs do it on the plate. I, I you know, Chef Sherman and he does an amazing job. He's also in, he's actually, in, there's an anecdote in the book. I was really lucky enough to meet him um, a few years back. And I had done some work on the Pine Ridge Reservation, which is where Chef Sherman is originally um, from and was originally lived. And, you know, one, he thought sort of the approach to food policy needed a little less naivete and a little more understanding. But really, you know, indigenous seed saving, the promotion of indigenous ingredients, the idea, like these are things that, that those communities have been doing for tens of thousands of years. And so really to look to those as examples. Chefs also do things within their community, right? So one of the things that it, we, I talk about throughout the book is how to engage your, your own community, your own network of followers. Chef Paula Velez was a co-founder of Bakers Against Racism that started in the 2020s, right, as a reaction to George Floyd and other social strifes. And that is a global community of bakers, right? Um, professional bakers, local bakers who, you know, raise money through bake sales um, and through community actions for organizations in their community. And it is an unapologetic um, also supporter of uh, Black-led organizations and social justice, right? Bakers Against Racism, it's a very specific um, name, very specific cause, but it's really community-based, right? And then you have the chefs that do the hard lift of coming to Washington or traveling to their state capital to really get in deep um, you know, up to their arms in uh, actual policy and legislation. And, you know, I think when we th think about that, you know, Ed Kenny is a chef from Hawaii and the story actually didn't make the book. So I, I love the opportunity to tell it, which is that, you know, he worked for several years on protecting uh, an area in Hawaii around uh, local and indigenous fishermen. Right. And at the end of the Obama administration, it became the largest marine reserve in the world, in part thanks to chef advocacy. But it took years. Right. Because policy takes a lot longer. So chefs, the plate, the community and in the, in the halls of Congress or their state houses, they really get involved at all those levels. It's amazing. But I think the lessons in your book are also pertinent, not only to chefs, but also to your average consumer. Um, so what can you share with us about ways that us, um, you know, consumers of fruits and vegetables and all the other things that we find at the store in our local market, how do we advocate for, let's say, if our focus is on access to healthy, nutritious food, um, whether it's at home or in, our, or in our schools, like what are some of the ways that we can um, take lessons from your book to advocate for those topics? 
Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, it's, I actually think the framework that we developed to train chefs, um, this A is for advocacy framework is something that anybody can use, right? It's not, it's not unique to the chef community. I had been using it for, you know, a long time before training advocates on other issues and policy pieces around the world and sort of just fine tuned it with the chef community. But one is narrowing our focus, right? I think we all get asked all the time to support this animal shelter, to support this Girl Scout troop, or to support, you know, this farm. And the more we give, in some ways, the better we feel, but the less intentionality and the less direct relationship we have with the causes or the organizations that we care about. So I'm a huge proponent in narrowing our focus. I'm also a huge um, advocate for getting educated, right, um, which goes to forming deep, relationships with the issues that you care about, doing the research to to learn about those, right? So, you know, it is, it's one thing to have an opinion about what the food system should look like. It's another thing to really do the work um, and to get to know the organizations and the leaders that are doing this. Because also, we're not the first people that have come up, said that we should advocate for a better food system. We're not, I'm not the first person to advocate for a minimum wage increase. I'm not the first person to advocate for more organics. There are experts and spokespeople and organizations that have been doing this who would love really dedicated um, and intentional um, relationships with folks. Um, and so, you know, so one area of focus to, you know, do the work and get educated. I think three, take the baby steps, right? Have the conversations, right? Like advocacy is a long journey. I always, um, you know, the thing I always say is that it's like going on a walk with your entire family from your grandmother to the toddler, right? And the toddler's gonna run ahead and stub their toe and fall over something, right? Somebody's gonna have to hang back with the grandmother to like help them over the same hurdles, right? And everybody's gonna go at a different pace but we're all gonna get to the same place, right? And so advocacy is also that. And so you have to take those baby steps. You have to figure out how you're gonna run, how you're gonna walk, how you're gonna go slowly. And then, you know, there are some basic things that we can all do too, right? It, we can vote with our forks, right? So if you really care about, you know, natural ingredients or, you know, um, limiting the amount of meat in a, in a diet or promoting non-processed foods, Voting for those in your in your area and your community are you know really our first step. Same with restaurants, choosing a, a woman-owned or a BIPOC-owned restaurant over other restaurants. Like that intentionality of using your daughters. We always call it you know you vote with your dollars, and then voting, right? I think you know I am you know my first third of my career was spent really deeply entrenched in the democratic process, and you see the sort of fall off of American voters that fall off on registration. And I think, you know, we've seen elections decided by fewer than a dozen votes in some cities and some communities and certainly um, nationally. And so uh, voting actually does matter. So, you know, figure out what you are really interested in, be super intentional about it, um, do the work to get to know the issues and the organizations that are already, you know, at work in it. Um, take some baby steps and figure out how to get involved and those will grow and change over time. And then vote with your fork and vote and vote in general. No, that's 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 huge. I mean, I, I can say it's it can feel a bit overwhelming as as an individual. And you're thinking about how can my actions have some role in advocacy. And you're right, like group 
you know, as a group, more people vote with their forks and with their dollars that can, and actually vote, you can have advantages there. I mean, but when I think about the healthcare crisis that we currently sit in in the U.S., I feel like the, you know, one of the greatest changes we could ever make is to remove these subsidies that enable very cheap, hyper-processed foods and instead put those dollars towards real food, not only in terms of growing those foods, but also educating people on how to cook those foods and how to, you know, engage with community gardens, but really how to, how to um, prepare real food. But when you think about that idea up against the vast amount of money that lobbyists from these multinational companies have that are very much in favor of staying with the status quo, promoting these hyper-processed foods, it seems honestly very hopeless. Um, So do you have reasons for us to have hope? Are there organizations we can, or things that we can think about doing to help push push that line further from these hyper-processed foods, which have been scientifically shown time and again to contribute to very poor health outcomes for our country at large. How do we shift that needle towards a healthier healthier lifestyle? Um, And again, it's not always about consumer choice if the system is rigged against those consumers. So how do we fix that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is going to be a long road. Right. I think that everybody needs to be prepared that it's going to take a lot longer than you think it's going to take. Advocacy is not something that truly, you know, systems don't change overnight. And what we're talking about is a giant system. Right. So one of the first exercises exercises I always do in trainings, right, is when I have people introduce themselves, I have them hold like a red ball of string. Right and throw that ball to the next person and then someone, right? And it's really easy to do that, right? I can throw the ball across the thing and I can throw the ball. And then the next part is to unravel themselves. And that takes longer and it, create, and it creates tension, right? And it, but it is very intentional and it's very careful, right? And so I think there is something in that when we think about the food system, because as much as we would like to shift subsidies to support more healthy fruits and vegetables, to support local resilient food systems. We all saw the food bank lines during the pandemic, right, grow and um, food banks were accepting families they had never expected to see because the food system sort of broke, right? Um, But it is a system. And so if we want to see that shift, we also have to be realistic that there are tens of thousands of people that are currently employed in that system on every farm in America, those roots of that system are deeply entrenched in many farm and family communities, right? Um, And so when we talk about shifting that, we have to be really mindful of the communities that we're also impacting, right? Because we can't tear up the roots and start over, even though we'd love to. Right. But that's not that's not what we actually can do. So. Right. So one of the things that I love working on, I'm working on a project right now. Right. With um, one of my clients is this idea of like, how do we create funding and de-risk for farmers to make that shift? Right. Um, because all of that food is sort is subsidized. Right. And so that means the prices are fixed. Um, It means that farmers currently can plan, right? Um, Maybe not always in the best of ways, but if you're going to shift that, you actually have to 
help them do it. You also have to help them do it in a rhetorical sense, right? I think one of the challenges that, so that we face at a food movement, food is, is, is a singular subject, but it is also like our most personal, right? It is the thing like, and the amount of judgment in the food system is pretty intense, right? Um, I did a project where we did some messaging. It was for a large foundation and we interviewed people who were on SNAP and we interviewed people about their choices. And one of the things that always stuck with me was a woman was asked why she used her um, dollars to buy a cake, right? Because there was all this thing like she shouldn't be allowed to buy a cake, right? Like that shouldn't. And she was like, I bought a cake for my kid's birthday right? We're all allowed to buy cakes, <laughs> right? Like we're all allowed to celebrate, but there was a real sense of like that value judgment, right? Um, and so figuring out how we talk about these issues too, where we are also um, empathetic and informed and conscious of the choices that we're asking people to make. If we are asking a farmer to move from, you know, tens of thousands of acres of grapeseed oil plants where he's going to make, he or she is going to make a constant living, be able to keep that farm. And we're asking them to replant something, but we've given them no financial incentives, no guarantee of a market, right? No access to training, no guarantee of equipment to help them make that transition. They're not going to make it, right? Um, and so like that, so this is a system, it's deeply rooted. It's impossible to pull them out, right? and we and put something in place immediately and so we have to think about how we unravel it how we incentivize it and also how we talk to each other about it those are those are such well well-framed points I, I i can visualize in my head now this idea of unweaving that thread yarn you know web that's created across all these different different sectors I guess one question is, you know, do you feel that within the recent, you know, whenever we renew the farm bill, are we moving the needle in that direction or, or is there space for some gradual change or are we just not really starting the change process? No, I mean, we have started the change process, right? Like, okay. I mean, I think that we, you know, we've saw in the 2013 Farm Bill, great strides related to food waste reduction and expansion of GUSNIP from a pilot program to a larger program, right? We've seen um, billions of dollars flowing to sort of what they call climate smart agriculture here. That's what we call it here in DC, right? But it's to help farmers make a transition to planting more cover crops, right? To um, improving the health of the soil, which which also can improve the nutrient value of the food, right? Um, and, you know, we've also started to make great inroads in the investments in local community food systems, right? So supporting more urban farms, supporting more distributors that are um, keep the food closer to home. I mean, one of the things that people don't always comprehend about the food system is that in these amazing places like Sacramento or in Iowa, you know, in Sacramento is one of our most prolific agriculture growing regions in the entire country. It also has one of our highest rates of food insecurity because everything that's grown on a farm in Sacramento or in Northern California has more value outside of that community than it has inside of it. Right. So that farmer doesn't have really any incentive to like sell. I mean, he can sell it in the CSA, but he's not going to make as much money as he is going to put it on a truck 
um, and ship it across the country, right? So like th those types of investments, we started to see inroads in the, in the last couple of farm bills. I think this farm bill is gonna be a bit harder, right? I think the partisan makeup of Congress and the rhetoric and the sort of anti-government thinking um, that's currently sort of prevalent, especially in the House of Representatives, is gonna make it hard to do anything but incremental change or protect the very small investments that we've already started to make. But at the same time, I am hugely optimistic, right? Like I see people going into farming every day. I see the farmers. I mean, I was out in Iowa walking some fields with um, farmers about two months ago. Yeah, about two months ago. And, um, you know, that, you know, they want to make those transitions. They want to make those things happen and seeing the younger generation of farms take over. So I'm, you know, I think the farm bill itself as a singular piece of legislation is a bit of a problem. The partisan makeup in Washington is a bit of a problem, but we've made, we've made um, inroads. We're going to protect those inroads. And then what's happening in communities all over the country just gives me such great optimism and hope. That's great. Well, you've mentioned a few mistakes that people interested in advocacy can make. This idea of ripping things out by their roots is kind of like yanking the Band-Aid off, which to be honest is how I would like to just snap and have it fixed. But I realize that's not a possibility. Um, so what are some of the other common mistakes or misconceptions that people that are interested in advocating for food justice or food security make in their advocacy and how do we how do we learn from those mistakes yeah i mean i think the number one is in the language that we use right i think you know food is highly personal right we all have an amazing food memory right the thing that our grandmother made for us or the first thing that we tasted you know the first time i went to i went to college in new orleans and the first time i tasted true sort of like cajun from the bayou um louisiana food right when the first time somebody, you know, experienced a fresh tomato is as crazy as that sounds, right? Um, you know, that those types of things, they inform who we are to the core of our DNA. Um, we also have very personal feelings about our appearance, our health, our family's health, right? The way we were raised, the sort of cultural norms. And I think the biggest mistake that we make in food is that we, we tend to lead with our experience right? And our beliefs, right? And our opinions about things as opposed to creating a conversation, right? So, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is one, an aspirational messaging framework where, you know, we look at, in trainings all the time, I'll say, how many people support ending hunger in our lifetime? And every single person will raise their hand. And then I will ask a series of sort of narrowing questions. How many people think the government should pay for that transition? How many people think that that should transition should prioritize fresh fruits and vegetables? How many people think that this should be caloric density, not nutritional density, right? Like all of those things. And by the end of the time, no one has their hand raised, right? Because everyone has a different prescription on how we solve this problem, right? Of our food system, our very complicated food system. So I think, you know, one of the things that's in the book is a lot of like conversation openers, like how do we think about what's our role in the story to help someone understand this, right? How do we have a conversation that's sort of centered in the end goal? I want healthier food on every menu um, in the country, right? I want all, it, it, we always talk to you, and you mentioned it, right? This idea of eliminating 
almost eliminating, making it so ubiquitous that there is no choice, right? Because people make a food decision based off an intersection of time, taste, and price currently. And so if you can eliminate, <laughs> right, uh, the, like their comparisons on price, right, or flavor, right, it makes it much easier to do that. So I, I do think that you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make as advocates is to enter the conversation from our own point of view and not really thinking about it as sort of the common goal. I think, you know, our objective is to open conversation, is to create a dialogue, not to lecture, right? Which I think is another really horrible thing that a lot of advocates do, right? Which again is because it's centered in what I believe, right? Or what the individual believes. Let me tell you how the world should be. Right. I'm totally um, guilty of that as a professor. <laughs> I lecture <laughs> multiple times a, a, a week. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I will say, you know, one of the places and I've, I've spoken about this with my students, one of the places I would love to see massive change is in early childhood nutrition. If it were up to me, there would be no kitty menus on restaurant menus because those are just filled with hyper-processed foods, whereas the parent might have a nice dinner with some salmon and vegetables, and here, let me give the child um, French fries and hyper-processed chicken nuggets that are, you know, fried and full of sodium and all these things that are really not great for children. Like, so I, I guess I do get on my soapbox sometimes about this because I think that we need a cultural shift. We do. It's affecting our health on such a massive scale. Our, yeah. our healthcare system cannot support this if we continue on the same path. It just can't. No, I 100% I, I agree. I mean, it worked on a project a couple of years around the true cost of food, right? And one of the biggest hidden costs was the amount of that our food system was costing us in diabetes and heart disease and lost work and wages from being out sick, right? You know, this is. Food is an incredibly expensive thing when it comes to our healthcare system. I am very optimistic. I mean, it's, it's an odd thing to say about the world of capitalism, but health insurance companies have started to wake up to the fact that they can't, um, they can't get out of this um, without further subsidizing medically tailored meals, food as med medicine programs, culinary education, Right, all the things that encourage people to make healthier, make choices that are healthier for their bodies, right? Um, and that is a growing piece. You know, foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, have just made a commitment at the White House summit last year to $250 million invested in food as medicine programs. I think the one thing, like if I could do one thing though, to your point, is, you know, I would uh, change advertising, right? Because, you know, there's so much advertising that is geared to children, right? Whether it's in the actual placement in the grocery store, which is actually dollars that's spent to secure those placements to, you know, what they see in school, right? What they see in a magazine or even on a, you know, a, a movie or a piece, a, a television, Right, like the advertising dollars that are spent targeting children with sugary snacks and sodas and that kind of stuff is is actually something that you know we could as advocates call for more, um, and it would probably even make a bigger difference than farms, <laughs> right? Um, 
That's a really good point. I mean, when I look at the, you know, I've, I'm a mom of four, so I've had many battles <laughs> at the grocery store when I, especially when they were toddlers, you know, yeah. looking at some of these, um, these, these yogurt products, um, as just an example, I mean, many of those products have more sugar than just giving them candy, oh, but yeah. we think of yogurt as a health food. Um, it, it can be, uh, you know, but it's not the ones that are being marketed towards children, like you said, are, are incredibly enriched for sugars and things that are unhealthy for them. So there yeah. are just, there's, there's a dichotomy here, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And, and policy plays such an important role in driving what is available um, and what's allowed in, in healthcare advertising. We have, you know, black box warnings on packs of cigarettes. Why don't we have more warnings um, on our food packages that are honestly not, you know, of nutritional value, but which really did, you know, affect our health in a bad way. Um, those are other areas of policy you can take besides switching around dollars. Um, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I think we could, you know, the food community, um, I also think spends far too much time debating which type of orange juice is healthiest. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because we that's what we get into. Right. And yeah. I think what what we have forgotten in some ways is the sort of old adages. Right. Like, con, you know, and again, because convenience is a, played a whole a, convenience plays a huge piece in what our um, food system looks like today. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And you raised it earlier about cooking. Like, you know, I think one of the things that people talk about all the time is if we taught more people how to cook and it's like but we can't teach people how to cook in the time constraints that they are, right? So again, the system, right? Like we are we're living and working in a world of where families are working 40, 60, 80 to 100 hours a week, right? Yeah. Where do they have the time to- To cook and to teach their children to cook. I mean, I think that's, children, right? yeah, that's one of the greatest life skills and gifts that I feel like I've given my kids is yeah. they know how to prepare a meal from scratch, even my 10-year-old. Um, and he's very proud of that, of making his own pasta dish and making a sauce and, and serving it to his friends. But that takes time. I have yeah. a luxury of time. Like you said, that many people don't have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I learned it in high school, like in home ec, right? They don't even have yeah. home ec anymore they don't, in school, right? Yeah. So like even those, and again, it, so it's a systemic thing, right? Like it's like we have ripped up some of those past, you know, systems and we put other things in place for them or, you know, um, and it doesn't, it doesn't always pan out the way we think it's going to, right? Yeah. So, um, so you kind of have to be open to it and, you know, understand that policy is going to take a long time. Um, know that it's, um, we all have to do what the chefs do, which is think about advocacy on our plate, how we interact with our local communities and what we can do on a larger policy scale. I mean, that formula fits with all of us, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think it also begins like, you know, if you have that luxury of time of spending time eating meals together, uh, preparing meals together and eating them and having this kind of playing into this whole slow food movement as well. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on slow food and how this kind of intersects with, with policy? Do you, I mean, it seems that our current food policy is at odds with the concepts behind slow food in, in the U S but do you see any opportunities there? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that the, I, Here's the thing. I think there are some very big realities that Americans have to face 
which is slightly different than Europe, right? Slightly different than other countries, which is that, you know, over the course of industrialization and the sort of monolithic makeup of our current food system, we have eliminated a number of things, right? We've eliminated a cultural fabric that is centered around food, whether it's pride in place in food, pride of ingredient, right? Valuing that product closer to home. It's, and so rebuilding that is gonna take time. I think it's why you've seen things like Slow Food USA have a little bit of a slower uh, adoption in the US, right? Um, it's everywhere in Europe if you're, or and it's everywhere in sort of the, you know, global South or right outside of the United States, in part because those are cultures where food is still produced closer to home. There's still a pride of place in, related to a product or a region, right? And there's still great value in that from either a tourism perspective or a local community driver perspective. We're starting to reclaim that, you know, I think a little in the U.S., I think the other thing was we have to be really conscious of this, um, the generational shifts, right? So my grandmother was a child of the Great Depression. Her family had a sustenance garden in the backyard that fed her family, fed she and her three brothers and sisters, cousins, right? And when she and she was raised to, you know, get married, like that was the life goal. Right. She wasn't raised to go to school. She wasn't like she was like, how I am going to secure a better future for my family is that I'm going to marry well. She happened to do that. When she was dying and I was working on farms, she was like, had a feeling of almost failure. Right. Because she had worked and raised her children and raised all her daughters, her two daughters and her three sons to value college right? To not work a land, to not have a garden, right? And all of those things. And like, and here was her granddaughter, right? Talking about all of these things that she had no desire to go back to, right? And so I think we also have to think about cultural shifts, right? When we think about all these amazing young people who are reclaiming land and learning to farm again and wanting to restart this, most of them are the second or third generation from an immigrant family who was like they never wanted their kids to farm in the first place. Right. So like that is the whole thing about food. Like food is filled with these these narratives. It's filled with these considerations. It's filled with these values. Right. And that's why it's so complicated from an advocacy perspective. It's also why I love chefs. Right. Like chefs can translate that. They can tell that story. Um, they can help us understand that deeply rooted system in a way that is easy for folks. And I think also like we can get there, right? Like there's a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope for uh, where we're going to be in 20 years, but it's going to take 20 years, 20 more years, I should say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's so well put. Well, we're almost out of time. Before we end and wrap, I was wondering if you could distill your message, and this is a big ask, <laughs> if you could distill your message, like into just a few key takeaways, what would those be? Like three takeaways that the average person could take to heart when they think about how to advocate for whatever element of the food system that they feel most passionate about. Yeah. I mean, I always, you know, everything is, we, food touches all of our lives. It's a singular subject. 
we all have a voice in changing policy and changing our practices and changing what we buy, right? And there are easy things that we can do. And it starts with taking ourselves out of I, I, I and putting ourselves into the collective we and really thinking about what it is that we will all benefit from a system and how we get there together. So, you know, for me, like the, the basics around advocacy for anybody are that food is central to all of our lives, that we all have a voice in the policy pieces and we can all make decisions related to what we source and how we work in our communities. And if we can take it out of the I and put it into the we, we will all be so much more successful. That's great. I love that. Put it back into the, the context of the we. Well, I know that you've got a brand new book out. It's really exciting. Um, the listeners, it's called At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy. It comes out on, uh, it just came out on September 28th. Catherine, I know you've got um, a, a speaking tour planned around the book. Um, where can folks go to learn more about your book and, and access it? Yeah, so I'm my company's called Table81. And so table81.com, table81 at Instagram, on threads, on Twitter, all of those things. Um, there are listings of events. I'll be all over the country over the next six to eight months. So I start in DC um, and then travel to Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and a variety of other places. But um, they can find out more information on my website at www.table81.com. Um, and then I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and threads all at table81. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot from you and um, it really helped me put some of the framework um, that I've had around the farm bill into some additional context. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. You can find us at foodiepharmacology.com, where we also have links to our YouTube channel, where you can find the video version of this episode and others. You can also um, find links to some fun merch that goes along with the show. We've got coffee, uh, mugs, totes, t-shirts, and more for you to check out. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And thank you to you, our foodies out there, for listening each and every week. Um, this week, reflect. This is my, my homework for you as I'm putting on my professor hat. <laughs> Reflect on how your voice at, you know, through your food choices, through your plate, how your voice can be heard and, you know, what are the food issues that you're most passionate about? Stay healthy out there. I'll see you next time. <laughs>